Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. And welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am here with... Scott Gardner. That would be me. Yay! I do uh, wish to apologize right now if you hear something that sounds kind of like a box fan in the bad background. Um, that's because there's a box fan in the background. Because it's Georgia. It's the middle of June... And uh, it's it, it's really hot outside, <laughs> and I am in a very small room that doesn't have very good ventilation, and I don't like to be hot, because I'm overweight, and that makes being hot, like, three times as uncomfortable. Um, I think I'm over-explaining this, but it's yes, been a long I day, think, so... <laughs> yes, I'm getting very uncomfortable with this conversation. And then I like, and then I like to take my pants off. (laughs) Whoa! See, you just had to go there. See, I resisted the urge to say, "If you hear a naked man in the background, is that?" It's because I'm sitting here. Well, never mind. Anyway, yeah, it's it's hotter than hell here too, dude. Seriously, but uh, yeah, (laughs) you moved but didn't move. How does that feel? Well, it's actually it's actually hotter here most of the time. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh my God, what did I do? But well, you're can't... closer to the equator, so that would make sense. This is true. This is true. I cannot complain though. I love it. I'd rather have it be hot and and you know beautiful and have beautiful days to waste than cold and miserable in the land of ice and snow that I come from. So uh, yeah, complete opposite here. I. Uh... I used to sleep with the window open in the in the winter time in Pennsylvania, so because uh, I like the cold again because I'm kind of overweight. So, oh wow, we you got up on this overweight thing all the time. Like you are just the biggest fattest bastard, and that is not true. I have met you, and you are, I, I would say, um, how do I say this nicely? You're like stereotypical fanboy. I mean, you're not like like you know great big huge monstrosity or so you know you you i think you're very down on yourself i think you you need to you need to buck up and you need to have a positive self-image and you need to lose some goddamn weight while you're at it you need to put the cheeseburger down no i'm just kidding (laughs) no i uh i i am gifted i guess you could say with a very uh gifted (laughs) not that kind of gifted um I come from two sides where there are many men uh, in my extended family that are like built like brick shit houses. <laughs> so I carry the weight a lot better than some other people. Because you, you know, if you look at some fat people, 
the, uh, I try it's, not to, to be no, honest. no, it's really funny because because uh, somebody said this to me once. They, they 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 said I look like a weightlifter that's gone to seed, uh, whereas some fat people they said look like sloppy fat. And I'm like, what do you mean sloppy fat? And then I started looking around at comic shows, and that was mean. Um, you ever notice like the dude with like the narrow ass shoulders, but their guts huge? Right. It looks worse than it might actually be just because they're disproportionate it's like when you see the girl whose stomach kind of sticks out just a little bit further than their breasts oh yeah yeah um yeah so i guess it's it's all in how you carry i mean i obviously for my health i need to uh to drop some poundage but i just like talking when i get just being hot and i haven't cut my hair in like six months and because I'm growing it out because I'm vain. And now let me tell you about my twisted childhood. I don't know. God, it's been such a weird freaking day. But we got some comics to talk about, and Scott is going to go first. Oh, awesome. Okay, guys. Uh, how do I put this? That's not a good sigh. Yeah, strap in, bitches, because this is going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> That's the best way I can put this. All Strap right, I, in, Nim Nub, because we're <laughs> about to bust this out like Billy D. <laughs> I hope the flux capacitor and the uh, the time circuits can handle this jump, because we are going back, I believe, farther than we have ever gone back before. <laughs> You're doing that yellow kid can collection, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is yellow. Um, <laughs> we are jumping way the hell back. To June 1947. Wow, that is, I think, the farthest we've gone back. I'm pretty sure this is. And I, well, I'm going to save that comment. I'll I'll, I'll table that until uh, discussion of this story. This is Wow Comics number 55. This is, uh, as I said, June 1947. This is an anthology title, and of which I'm just going to be looking at the first story in the book. And holy shit, is it wacky. So we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Gorgeous cover on this one, by the way. That, uh, unfortunately, I have absolutely no credits on this whatsoever. This was way back in a day when... Uh, you know, typically you would at least get maybe the writer and the artist. There's nothing in this. There's there's absolutely no credits whatsoever. Um, I believe the cover is by um, Jack. It's either Binder or Bender. I'm not sure, but it's a real nice I, cover. I know with Otto. Yeah, it's Bender. And I think Otto possibly could be a writer in one of the at least one of the stories in this. But again, I I just could not seem to find any solid information on anything to do with this book beyond one site call it says that the cover is by uh uh i'm pretty sure the first name was jack jack bender or binder um but it's a it's a really nice cover it shows mary marvel swooping in to uh save some children that are in danger of being crushed as the building around them is collapsing in well, the story that we're going to be covering is called Mary Marvel in the Earthquake, but it, this doesn't really look so much like an earthquake as like this like massive storm raging outside their window. But anyway, it's a really nice cover, especially for, uh, for this era of comics. Uh, so the first story in here is a Mary Marvel story, and it is called Mary Marvel, the World's Mightiest Girl in Earthquake. 
and there's a beautiful uh, opening panel that shows this dude. He's in a, a subterranean cave, you know, lots of stalactites and stalagmites, and he's like plummeting off a cliff as Mary Marvel swoops in to save him. This, of course, never happens in the story. Our story actually starts at uh, Mary Batson's uh, foster parents' house, and her foster mother is introducing her to this guy named Guy Arnold, and he's a well-known geologist, so well-known that we've never heard of him before. And he, he's there because Mary's stepmom, um, foster mother rather, has hired this guy because she has an interest in some mining company and she's thinking about uh, sinking a new shaft, that she says, in the Badland <laughs> region. I swear to God, I'm not I making would, that up. Not, not, many, not many women like to sink the shaft in the Badland region, so <laughs> you would think that... I mean, are, are, are we sinking that shaft in the Badland region in the back of a 69 Volkswagen? I'm sorry, it's freaking there. Uh, I was uh, the sinking the shaft I got. I didn't ever even thought about the Badland. You're abs. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's why I love uh, taking stuff out of context from back in these old comics. So, anyway. Um, he says, you know, well, I'm going out there tomorrow, by the way, I could use an assistant to take notes. So of course he takes Mary, who I'm pretty sure is a miner with him. And I think he's kind of thinking about sinking a new shaft too. So anyway, the next day they're out in the badlands and they're wandering around and there's some bullshit about, you know, the type of stones that are out there. And he doesn't think that they're going to be able to to uh, sink a new shaft because of the way the rocks are made and all this. And just a lot of wacky science here about, you know, I think there's actually underground faults. And I'm thinking, I don't think you can tell this sort of thing just by going out and walking around a region of, of desert or whatever. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just seems very wacky. Well, he's borne out as being correct because no sooner has he got the words out of his mouth than there's a giant... Uh, geological upheaval and it opens this fissure in the earth so of course what does he do well he decides he's going to go spelunk and he's going to go down into this newly opened uh, fissure and discover what's going on so he leaves the young helpless teenage girl there all by herself well he says he'll come right back but then he never does many many hours drag by so the caption tells us and Mary finally decides, well, I got to go find out what happened to him. So she goes down into the, the fissure herself. When she gets down there, she finds that he's actually marked his way, you know, very uh, journey to the center of the earth style. You know, he's got little arrows on the walls and stuff like that. As she's walking along, she sees this giant stalactite break off over her head and it comes plummeting down at her. So she says her magic word and turns into Mary Marvel. And then she decides to remain Mary Marvel to sort of speed up the search while she's looking around for this guy. And she starts to get this weird feeling coming over her. And she says that she feels as if time is speeding up and that uh, days, and hour, uh, days and weeks are passing for the minutes and hours that she's down there. I don't know how she comes to this conclusion. She just kind of does. And she comes across this village of you know, very like Conan looking people living down in an underground world. And as she's spying on them, she sees them suddenly start to bow and kowtow. And she realizes that somebody important is coming when she sees Guy Arnold come walking along, except 
he's now holding a scepter and he's dressed in robes with this weird, funny crown looking thing. And he's aged 20 years. And so she goes to confront him and says, you know, I know who you are and you know, what happened to you? You know, you, you, you know, I came down here to rescue you and he barely remembers her, barely remembers the language that she's speaking and orders the, the cave people to seize her and all this. So she fights back and basically fights her way free and then goes and sits on a rock for a little while to try to figure out, okay, what the hell is going on down here? And it's, there's a great panel of her sitting on a rock and all these little like lightning bolt rays all around her, almost like Spider-Man's spider sense, almost the way that that's portrayed sometimes. And she says, how can Arnold be king? Why is he older? Something's all crazy. Wait. These rays from the walls, they must be radioactive. I felt strange before, and now I know why. Somehow, these radioactive rays work on human glands and speed up their living processes. Time is speeded up here. What is a few hours in the outside world is equal to years in this cave. And she goes on and on with this pretty ridiculous concept blah 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 exactly so she finally gets to the end of all this so what does she decide to do she says her secret word again and turns back into regular old mary bats and i'm thinking now you already know that there's radioactive rays at work down here aging people 20 years obviously it's not working on you when you're in your shazam state so why the hell would you change back into your your regular mortal person but she does so suddenly, even though she looks exactly the same except for her clothes between being Mary Batson and Mary Marvel, suddenly when she goes to see Guy Arnold as Mary Batson, it kind of snaps him out of it. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Mary Batson, I know you. And so she's talking to him, trying to convince him, you know, you need to, to leave with me. We need to go back home. I've been trying to find you. You know, let me rescue you. And he's like, no way. I, you know, they worship me here. I'm all cool. Let's stay here. When suddenly there's another earthquake. So right in front of everybody. I mean, absolutely no attempt whatsoever made to, to salvage her secret identity. She says her magic word, turns into Mary Marvel, and snags Guy Arnold just as he falls into another fissure. Then she flies out as the fissure seals itself. And I'm imagining that all of the cave people died. <laughs> it really doesn't tell what happens to the village or any of the people that were living down there. Okay, so he's rescued. They're back in the above-ground world. So what happens? He instantly looks exactly the way he did when he went down underground in the first place. He's de-aged 20 years. He says, how strange. Now that I'm out of the cave, all that happened in there seems like a fading dream. And she says, and now you're, tw you're uh, no longer 20 years older now that the rays don't have influence over you. So still as Mary Marvel, mind you, they walk away together thinking about whether or not, you know, they're going to say anything about this adventure. And, and he says, oh, I forgot to mention his name when he was king down in the underground. His, his kingly name was King Bong. Hmm. I wonder where the writer got that name from. <laughs> so the last panel of the story is Mary Marvel looking she's holding a newspaper but she's looking at us the readers and she's saying strange isn't it guy guy arnold only lost one day as for mary marvel her whole adventure in the cave only took 15 minutes 
But I tell you what, it's 15 minutes I'm never going to get back. And holy shit, does this story make my head hurt. Now, I know that being comic book fans, we all live in a world and fully embrace crazy ideas such as a guy getting bitten by a radioactive spider can suddenly swing around on webs and lift buses and shit like that. Or that a guy, simply because he comes from another planet with heavier gravity than ours, can fly all over the place and lift cars and all this crazy shit. But come on, this was just flat out ridiculous. I mean, the concepts and the, and the things laid out in this, while the art for a golden age book is fantastic. This story was just, Oh, there's a word I so want bat, want so badly to use, but I've, I've promised the listeners. I won't say that word anymore, but Oh, Holy shit. It's hard not to, because that word so fully embraces everything. This story was about, I got, I got a contact high listening to you. do that synopsis. <laughs> well, you know, this is largely why I am just not, I just don't dig on the Golden Age stuff as a general rule. You know, I have tried it. I, I, I respect its place in, in comics and what it brought about and how it helped us get to where we are and everything like that. But it seems like every time I make a serious attempt to, to try to get back into the Golden Age, I stumble across shit like this and it's just like, oh my God. So. Well, well, it's kind of funny you mention that because uh, recently I picked up rather cheap at my comic shop. I only had to pay like thirty bucks for it. The uh, first volume of the Golden Age Green Lantern archives, mm-hmm. and I read through the origin story again, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is actually a really well written story. I really like how it plays out." And I'm looking forward to going through the the rest of them. And I think back, you know, on reading like Golden Age Batman stories and Golden Age Superman stories, which, you know, can be kind of hit and miss, but some mm-hmm. of them are really freaking good. I think the main problem, uh, as I say this from the future, um, with, gold, with the Golden Age in general, is they had to produce so many different stories right. that eventually you're just going to run out of ideas or use the first idea that pops in your head because you got to get that story out because you've got a deadline. You know, it's not like when we were growing up reading comics where, yeah, you had four, you know, like I had, you know, four different Superman titles I followed. But they were all following kind of a track and they would follow a storyline and they only had one issue a month to get out and in that issue there was generally only one story. So they had time to flesh things out because they had a full 22 pages, sometimes more to do that with. These people had 8 to 15 pages to tell a story, and there were sometimes 4 to 5 to 6 of them in an issue because those things were 64 freaking pages long. Right. You know, they were thick tomes. I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, if if you gave a kid a single comic book and they were going on like a car trip today, they'd be done before the you know the car was like out of their neighborhood. Whereas back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and even going on to the 60s and such, you know, you give a kid like two or three comics, that might last them an entire car ride, you know, depending on where they're going. So I think that's where they really kind of suffer from a modern standpoint because... It, I never got the the sense that you were judging it as as a story written today 
Right. It's just compared to other Golden Age stories or late Golden Age stories, as I guess this would be since it's from 1947. Uh, yeah, that's a clunker. I can easily see why, though, that, you know, there was a time, supposedly, that, uh, you know, the Fawcett stuff outsold, uh, you know, particularly like Captain Marvel outsold Superman stuff. Like, I can kind of see that because, man, the art, you can't fault the art in this. The art is absolutely beautiful. The story might be wacky as hell, but the art <laughs> is really, really nice. There was some other stuff in here, too. I didn't read all of it because... Uh, I was kind of dismayed to find that uh, there's actually some pages missing in the center of the book, which was a real shame. I was trying to remember where I actually got this book from, and I think there was there was a time when I, I was first getting into comics when I was a teenager, and uh, I was still living you know in upstate New York and all that. And we lived very close to Fort Drum, and I remember this this friend of my dad's. Um, that had a whole he was a gi stationed at drum and he had a whole bunch of comics and he had a ton of golden and silver age stuff that he just wanted to get rid of and so for a time um he was giving me stuff to try to see if i could sell it for him and then he would give me like a commission on the stuff what well, never really worked out very well i sold some of the stuff but this was like you know before ebay was ever a gleam in anybody's eye and stuff like that so, you know, I, I had limited success with it, but he would give me you know, one or two books at a time to work with. And I think this was one of the last books he ever gave me before he just kind of disappeared. And we never did know what happened to him, whether he got just reassigned and up and took off. I never really knew. You know, he just one day just never came around again. And I think this uh, this may have been one of the last books he had ever given me to try to, to sell off for him, I, I, I think. Beyond that, I, I'm not really sure where it comes from, but it, it's neat. It does. It has other stories. There's a uh, Mr. Scarlet and Pinky, which I always get a kick out of. And then there's a dude that uh, your young boy sidekick is named Pinky. <laughs> Even in the Golden Age, someone must have said, "What the hell are you thinking?" I like the other dude in here, Commando Yank, which to me just sounds like the worst wedgie you could possibly get. <laughs> the Commando Yank. It requires a certain wrist pull <laughs> that it, it's it's an acquired thing. you got to be double-jointed to be able to do it and pull it off properly, in my opinion. But, you know, the, the satisfaction of seeing the small guy you're picking on not be able to pick that thing out without, like, proper <laughs> tools, I mean, it's it makes learning the technique perfect, you know, worth it to me. And the back cover, you've got a... Uh... A Daisy Air Rifle ad with Red Rider, which I love. It's got Red Rider. He's holding up his BB gun. And he's talking to a uh, very, very, very um, racially insensitively drawn little Indian kid, little uh, Native American kid. And he says, Little Beaver, <laughs> do you savvy the 10 rules in the sportsman safety code? This, the, this is almost as bad as. The, the Badlands and the, <laughs> the, the, the sinking and the what the hell. And the, the little Indian kid says, You betcha'em, Red Rider. You listen, <laughs> me repeat them. Okay. That's bad. It is not as bad as the complete. 
completely offensive sidekick to the Americando to Texas Thompson before he was the American Commando in the pages of Action Comics that was drawn like every stereotypical African American guy uh, with like you know the, uh, the cartoony face and it was it was awful. Oh my God! I it, just realized that in the text piece to this. It gives the ten rules of the sportsman's safety code. I, I actually did not read this, but it's actually written in this like Tonto speak. It's me will never point him gun at anything. Me not intend to shoot him. I'm serious. It, every one of these starts with me will never. Oh my! So Holy so this shit. was written by the Incredible Hulk. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, that's rather. Man. I mean, really, you know, all things considered, that's rather impressive that wow. the Hulk would, you know, do that. So, well, that's uh, that's Wow Comics number fifty-five. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic, though. I mean, that that's a wacky, damn-sounding story. I don't, I don't have anything nearly as entertaining on that level. Though I do have a pretty cool comic this time out. I, I, I chose a Marvel book as is my want. And this time out, I have Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 76. It says a cover date of March 1983, and I paid a whopping 50 cents for this issue. Because Dave's, the comic shop I currently go to, had a fresh batch of 50-cent books come in. and uh, Which reminds me, I've got to go back and get those... Um, yeah, I've got to get some of those green arrows and the the late, like right before the Burn Mackey reboot Spider-Man stuff. That's kind of hard to find for some reason, uh, but it's too damn cheap to pass up. But this story is titled At Death's Door. It was written by Bill Mantlo, uh, penciled by Al Milgram, inked by Jim Mooney, uh, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by Bob Sharon, Editor Tom DeFalco and editor in chief Jim Shooter. And at the top of the the splash page, it says a Peter Parker primer. Say that like three times fast. It's kind of weird. And I wish this Dr Pepper would stop trying to come up on me. The black cat came back and was Spidey glad, but she'd made Doc Ock and the owl mad by stealing this bomb they thought they had. So the bad guys fought and got beat bad. Now the battle's done, the villains have lost, but Spidey and his lady will soon learn the cost. That's about the weirdest way I've ever seen anybody, you know, recap what's going on in a story. But anyways, as a, from the way this splash page looks, uh, it looks like Spider-Man and Black Hat have been uh, making out, and this is interrupted by the Owl and Doc Ock's gang teaming up to kill them. Spider-Man leaps into action and eventually covers them all in webbing. Black Cat notices that Doc Ock's arms, which had been ripped off by Spider-Man previously, are twitching just like Ock is. She also notices that they are heading towards the neutron bomb that Ock was going to detonate, and the cat stops them. This pisses Doc off off something fierce, that was weird to say, and he uses his mental control of the arms to grab and crush Felicia. Spider-Man is pissed. Like, 
really pissed, like Spider-Man smash pissed. And after taking down the rest of the gang, he grabs Ock's arms, webs them up, and throws them out to the window, and they plunge to the bottom of the sea as Ock cries out in pain. Spider-Man doesn't give a rat's ass about this as he grabs Felicia and swings her to a hospital. Doc Bruce Banner takes Felicia and rushes her into surgery, and the reason why I say that is that the doctor in this issue has brown hair, is wearing glasses, has a white lab coat, and purple pants. What? It's just what the guy's wearing. It's not Bruce Banner, (laughs) but damn, he plays him on TV. (laughs) Later, a nurse wakes Spider-Man up and says that that Felicia is critical, but for the moment, alive. Uh, The nurse suggests he gets some rests as the sun is rising. Spider-Man leaves, but only because he has to take his physics exam. He makes it just in time, despite the doubts his professor has about him, you know, actually finishing the test. And he does so just before the time is up. After, after the test, he rushes past his friends and seemingly blows them off, because that has never happened before in the entire history of Spider-Man. Nope. None of his friends have ever been upset because he's rushing off to the hospital because some woman in his life is in intensive care or something. He doesn't seem to care. And they don't know. They don't know his inner pain. They just assume he's being a dick. (laughs) So Peter changes back into Spider-Man and heads to the hospital. Once he arrives, Spidey runs into Gene DeWolf, who has amnesty papers for Felicia Hardy, which means Felicia is alive! Spider-Man rushes to her room and starts thinking that with all of his power, he couldn't even save her. No, wait, that was not the beginning of... That was, like, in the beginning of Superman the movie. I apologize for that one. But he couldn't save her, just like Uncle Ben, and all Spider-Man can do is weep. Felicia wakes up and tells Spider-Man to cut that shit out because it's not manly. Okay, that doesn't happen at all. She tells Spider-Man that it only hurts when she laughs, so he shouldn't tickle her for a while. And Spider-Man starts to laugh and to cry and to shout his gratitude towards the skies. Meanwhile, Doc Ock tells the doctors who are reattaching his arms that they shouldn't give him any pain medication because he wants to feel the pain so he can feel what Black Cat and Spider-Man will feel when he tears them limb from limb. And that's the end of the issue. And this was actually a lot of fun. I, I really, I enjoy this pe- period of uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, Bill Mantlo, uh, when he wasn't bringing in Cloak and Dagger, who I hate. Um, I've never gotten into Cloak and Dagger. I've never really understood the appeal of Cloak and Dagger. Uh, maybe one day I will, because that kind of happened with the Green Lantern Corps, like the alien parts of it. Uh, before this year, I never really got what that was all about. Uh, but after a couple years ago reading some of the Tales of the Green Lantern Corps annuals, and especially after watching the recent Green Lantern Emerald Knights uh, animated film, I get that now. So maybe one day Cloak and Dagger will be like my, you know, my, my new comic book BFFs. Um, not going to happen anytime soon. This is the end of a story, so it was a weird issue to kind of grab randomly and read, but at the same time, that's kind of one of the appeals of picking out comics for this show, because, it, you know, we've said it before, it, it, one, of the, one of the things that I like to do, and I know you like to do, is to kind of recapture that feeling of discovering something. Right. 
And uh, even though I was at the very end of this, I kind of, you know, you can kind of get what happened before. There was a big fight. Now it's over. Felicia's hurt. And you can get the drama and everything that's involved in that. Well, this the is one... like the epilogue to the to the Owl-Octopus War, right? Yes. Yeah. The problem that I have with this issue is, and, and, and this is going to sound mean, and it's really not, because I think Al, Al Milgram gets a lot of crap that is undeserved. Uh, I really wish that the art team had been switched, and it was Jim Mooney drawing the title, with Al Milgram inking him. Yeah. Because Mooney, to me, has a much sleeker style than Milgram did. Milgram is stiff. He's good, and I like you know his later issues uh, that would come after Mantlo left the book. And there's a couple really good pages. Like on page 9, there's this really great giant panel that takes up about half the page of Spider-Man sitting there. He just busted into the into columbia presbyterian hospital and he's got black cat in his arms and he says help her for god's sakes help her and there's like this trail of blood leading into the emergency room because he's just kicked the doors open but it's like the scene where he goes ape shit and starts beating up on the you know the owl and the ox men it could have looked so much better like for some reason I was expecting more rage and thus a more dramatic fight, but it seems like pretty typical Spider-Man fight, so um, yeah, that that doctor really looks like Bruce Banner it's kind of funny the professor, and this is me not knowing this time period of Spider-Man Empire State University in the physics building, the first year graduate student class is about to take their final exams and the professor sitting there looking at his watch Peter Parker isn't here yet. Maybe he's afraid to come. For Dr. Morris Sloan, this is a personal disappointment. He has worked long and hard to discipline Peter Parker's brilliant but erratic scientific mind. He is on the verge of giving his prize pupil up, and I'm like, God, why? this isn't new characterization. Everyone gives Peter shit, including his friends, especially this one girl who's like, hmm, I see Mr. Particle treats his friends as offhandedly as his studies. So, yeah. Then again, when Peter runs past his professor, uh, his professor says, I didn't think you would ever show up, Mr. Parker. How do you think you did? I don't know right now, and I couldn't care less. (laughs) So Peter really isn't helping his case here. Um, But overall, a really good story. It had a little one-pager of Gene DeWolf, who I've come to really like as a Spider-Man uh, supporting character. She's uh, apparently back in the Spider-Man books, though I'm not quite what? sure. It's Yeah, she's returned as the supervillain known as the Wraith, but I'm not completely convinced it's her yet. Uh. So I'm waiting to see how the, the story plays out. There is a really great ad in here for uh, a, it's a, one of the Marvel subscription ads, and it has Spider-Man peeking down the chimney uh, you know, telling people your first two 12 issue subscriptions cost $6 each. But outside, you have Magneto, Doc Ock, and Doctor Doom singing Christmas carols. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. I love that one. <laughs> it's just like the concept. Say Deck the Hall with Marvel Comics or something. Yes, it like does. That. Actually, yeah. that's exactly what it says. There's actually a lot of really good ads in here because it's uh, early. Um, 
early 80s Marvel. Uh, there's one on the inside cover that says, Gary Larson thought he had all the answers. Gary had an IQ of 162. He never got anything less than an A on his report card. He was oh, a wizard. Oh, that's the riddle of the Sphinx ad. Yep, exactly. <laughs> we were just talking about that on Star Wars Monthly Monday. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, on the back cover is a Super Cobra ad, a mission next to impossible, or a slogan next to almost getting your ass sued. <laughs> There's a weird thing in here. Um, usually the letters page comes after the final page, but for some reason, the way it was put into this book, it's after page 20, and then there's two more pages of story. Uh, really kind of weird. Uh, but uh, Spectacular Spider Mail, by the way, is what it was called. <laughs> uh, there is The Adventures is Yours with Dungeons & Dragons Fantasy Adventure Games, which is uh, an ad you would see on the back of DC books at the same t- around the same time. I remember my mom bringing me a Superboy comic home on my seventh birthday with that ad on the back. And there's an advanced Dungeons and Dragons action scenes ad, uh, which has like little miniatures and stuff. So that that's it, it's a model kit actually. That's weird. I didn't know NPC did Dungeons and Dragons models. I don't remember that. It's very strange. But that's all I got. Have you ever read this issue? Yeah, yeah, this is a this is an era of spectacular Spider-Man that's uh, actually very near and dear to me. And it's really funny, you know, uh, what you were saying about Cloak and Dagger because what's really odd is I really love this particular era of of spectacular Spider-Man. I, I can distinctly remember when I got into this title. I, I the first issue I picked up was number fifty-nine. It's a Roger Stern written issue. And uh, it, it's got several uh, supervillains. You know, it's got Spider-Man swinging in. It's this nice green cover, and it's got several uh, villains. It's like uh, the Beetle. I want to say the Gibbon is another one. I forget who the other one is. And they they're all saying we want Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. And that's where I came in, and I just was instantly hooked because of the way Stern wrote the character. I, I I still maintain he was the best Spider-Man writer ever. I just loved the way he portrayed Spider-Man. But then, looking back over the history of the title, he actually wasn't on the book much longer after that. I had misremembered all these years. Uh, most of these stories after... Uh, you know, not long after issue 59, uh, Bill Mantlo took over. Most of the stories that I've cherished all these years, thinking that they were Roger Stern stories, are actually Bill Mantlo stories, including the one that you just talked about. So that's actually pretty funny. But anyway, you know, Cloak and Dagger, at this point, it seemed like, you know, not more than two or three issues would go by before there was another friggin' appearance by Cloak and Dagger, <laughs> who I never really cotton to very much. So it's funny. I, I love this era despite them, not because of them, you know? <laughs> so, well, you know, Cloak, I always thought was a really interesting character, and he, he had a very, uh, you know, he had a cool gimmick and all that. It was just when you put the two of them together and their kind of lame-ass origin story and all that, it just, I respected what the guys were trying to do with the characters. It just... It never really worked, and it was like they were trying to force it to work. Yeah, and it that, really that, just didn't. That's kind of how I I took it too, and, and, and it's nothing against Bill Manlo, you know, because if you have characters you feel passionate about, obviously you're going to 
um, you know, try to push those as much as possible. But it's just sometimes for me personally, it just doesn't work. Right. At all. Well, um, yeah, part of it, I think, was just the, you know, the names were just kind of, they were kind of silly and they were kind of outdated. You know, it was, it was cloak and dagger. It would be, you know, that term to a, a, a child, a young teen or whatever in the 1980s, is is to me it's just as outdated as you if you came up with a character called the carpet bagger who the hell in this day and age knows what the hell a carpet bagger is you know and that's kind of the thing to me is that they were trying to play on this idea of cloak and dagger and it's like who uses that term who even knows what that is anymore isn't you know? that a movie with dabney coleman <laughs> right <I mean> <laughs> exactly you know so I you know I think with a little bit of tweaking they they could still be interesting characters. I mean I've heard that there have been good things done with them. I just they in these stories in particular they just kind of lacked a little something that I felt like they just kept pushing that like they wanted us to really dig them and I I for one just never really did because I remember the big you know, the big splash that was made when they got their first miniseries and, you know, there was a big to-do about it. And I was like, I could care less. I'm glad they're off in their own title now and they're not polluting the pages of Spider-Man anymore, you know? So, but I did like this era a lot. There was some really good stories that happened in this era. You know, this was the era that made me fond of characters like, you know, the Beetle and the Gibbon and I think this is where I saw like the owl for the first time. And I always thought he was really cool. Not realizing that he was a long time daredevil villain. You know, I thought he was some new Spider-Man bad guy for the longest time. And there was some good stuff. You know, the whole Deb Whitman thing comes to a head during this, this era, stuff like that. Black cat was used a lot during this era. Yeah. I, I like that run quite a bit. I need to dig it out and look at it again. One of these days. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com and is a registered trademark of DeManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.